thank you especially for again inviting me uh, to this wonderful uh, conference. My topic today is about uh, the Reformation. It was actually a question that Hans sent to me earlier this year, this year asking what exactly did the uh, Reformation reform? Now the short answer to that question is it reformed nothing but it changed everything. So that's the, the uh, very short answer and you'll get a 10 for that if you answer that on, on the examination paper. But the, uh, the explanation takes a bit longer. Now first of all, uh, I'd like to say that this topic for me uh, is a bit off course because unlike David, I have no uh, warm memories or even cold memories, indeed any memories of a religious education. I'm a product of the 20th, product of the 20th century uh, secularism, 100%. So what I, uh, my interest in religious matters, theological matters, is an outsider's uh, interest. Uh, I know that this disqualifies me in the eyes of all insiders on all sides from opening my mouth, but well, Apparently, the insiders in the, cring, in the circle of uh, outsiders is bigger, uh, growing bigger every day. So I have my outsiders view uh, here in the open. Now, why uh, speak about the Reformation? As a uh, libertarian, there is an obvious answer which I do not share. Uh, and there is a less obvious answer which I'd like to explain shortly. Uh, as you know, uh, or at least those who attended my previous uh, speech here, which was 2015 or something like that, it was about the notion of conscience and how the Reformation uh, changed the notion of the human conscience as if there is any other uh, conscience, but uh, it changed the notion of the human conscience. And that's, to me, is very important because uh, I am with Hans Hoppe in the corner of those who associate uh, libertarianism, thinking about freedom and liberty with uh, argumentation ethics, or as I used to call it in my more innocent days, the ethics of dialogue. Right? Now, what is uh, argumentation uh, if not constantly appealing to the other person's conscience? Right? Argumentation is different from negotiation. It's different from uh, uh, intimidation. It's different from coercion. Uh, and in what way is it different from all those things? In that it appeals to conscience, that is, to the things you already share, so literally common knowledge, conscientia, and you build upon this common basis to try to expand the range of things on which you can agree. So argumentation ethics is not just a technique, it is a way of life, so to speak. Right? And uh, <coughs> in that regard, our uh, Concerning that, I have 
a project which is probably too big for the remainder of my life, but it's called uh, conscientious libertarianism. So putting back libertarianism together with conscience, as it were, in a pre-reformation mold, because the uh, reformation initiated a period in which one speaker could say to another, that's my opinion, you have your opinion, and this is where it ends. So there is no need for arguing, right? I have my truth and you, you have your truth. Uh, this kind of separation, which amounts to anti-intellectualism, which amounts to uh, irrationalism or anti-rationalism, uh, very much came to the fore uh, in the, with the Reformation. It had been present, of course, before that. It's a, it's a general attitude, so to speak, that can be found in all times, but it received a uh, sort of uh, official accreditation in the uh, context of the Reformation. So conscience is, for me and here in this uh, speech, the central notion. And it has to, let me just uh, explain that there is a huge literature on uh, conscience as there is on everything else, right? So you have to uh, accord me the, the, the favor of uh, accepting my definition if only for the sake of the argument. And conscience for me is uh, basically before you start filling in what's in there, it is uh, to be understood in a sort of platonic uh, way as a, a common memory. What is there at the bottom of every human being and can be brought to the surface again uh, in human uh, discourse, human argumentation. If that would be impossible, then of course there is no basis for uh, argumentation. You have to prepare the ground, so to speak, uh, by uh, bringing up all those things which are really undeniable for any serious speaker. Of course, a jester can always deny everything. And we are in a society where jesters set the tone. Right? But the, uh, the idea of uh, speaking conscientiously um, implies that you try to make yourself understood by the other, so trying to speak in terms the other can uh, understand, that you mean what you say, that you do not uh, invent meanings, and you are not uh, Humpty Dumpty uh, giving words meanings they never had before, and that you uh, take responsibility for uh, your sayings, both within the context of speech and outside of it. So there is a conscientiousness, which refers to conscience, is uh, a very thick uh, concept. It's not just a formal thing, right? a box that you can check up 
Are you a conscientious person? Yes. Well, it takes more than, than that. Now, if we turn to uh, the Reformation proper, which is the, the subject here, uh, you will find that the Reformation, starting with Luther, uh, Martin Luther, uh, virtually uh, made it impossible to give the idea of conscience any meaning apart from the literal meaning of the Bible uh, to the extent that he accepted the Bible. And that is already the, uh, an indication of the big problem with the Protestant Reformation. Because Luther was followed by Calvin and, and many others, Protestants, they're all Protestants. And then after them, after this, what is called the doctrinal phase of Protestantism, all these Protestantisms which had a guru, eh, a main teacher, eh, there were all these movements, movements which had no doctrine but still uh, spread like wildfire uh, in throughout the West, especially uh, the English-speaking and the German-speaking world, where uh, the Reformation had first taken hold. Now, in saying this, I will be speaking about Protestants and Protestantisms. Uh, of course, Protestants are people and many Protestants are better people than many Catholics and vice versa. And you can say that uh, for, for any group, Jews, and Muslims, uh, pagans, uh, Inuits, any, anybody. You can always say many of them are better than many of the others and vice versa. So this is not a judgment on personal character, but it is a, what I try to do is an assessment of uh, the the atmosphere, the climate of thinking that is generated by certain ideas. Now, the Protestant, the different Protestantisms can all be summarized in the Western context, certainly as anti-Catholicism. So to understand Protestantism, you have to understand Catholicism. But also, uh, if you are looking for a, a common point apart from the non-Catholicism, uh, the, the, the question is what is Protestantism if it is not just anti-Catholicism? And uh, I cannot find uh, anything but uh, one of the more famous American Protestant theologians, uh, Benjamin Warfield, who take I think as an, an authority on, on the subject, uh, said this, before all else, Protestantism is in its very essence an appeal from all other authority to the divine authority of Holy Scripture. That's the direct reference to the sola scriptura, only uh, Holy Scripture of Martin Luther. Problem is, by the time uh, Wakefield uh, Warfield, sorry, Warfield wrote, uh, 
there were, already, there were already so many different appeals to the authority of the Bible that it was nearly impossible uh, to give any belief to his statement that you could appeal above all, uh, from all other authorities to the one authority of the Bible. He tried to do that, but uh, given what happened, since uh, he died, which was in the 1920s, early 1920s, apparently uh, his counsel was not followed or was not effective because there was no great unification of uh, Protestantism on the authority of the Bible. On the contrary, uh, it sealed all these controversi controversies sealed the, uh, the lack of authority of the Bible, uh, which became certainly in uh, many circles in the Anglo-American uh, world uh, a term of derision. Right? You have the, the Bible thumpers and you have intelligent people. Now, this can easily be extrapolated to the emergence of uh, atheism, not just as a, an intellectual stance, but as a general uh, attitude for most uh, people in the West. Luther, to come back to him, turned against the church claiming that he did not need to justify his position on uh, the matters that divided him from the, the church, but he could just say, uh, okay, you do what you have to do, but I'm out of here. And luckily for him, there was a welcome uh, home in, in Germany. We could easily imagine in other times that there would have been no one uh, to grant him asylum. <laughs> so he could return home and uh, be safe. And of course, the, the details of his life explain perhaps uh, why Protestantism had a very different uh, attitude to worldly power than the church. Because the, the church was always a rival to the secular powers even if she was well aware that uh, she could not, in battle, face them. She had to rely on a different authority. But uh, Luther knew that without the princes, there would be no uh, future for him, the German Protestant princes. Now, switching from these probably well-known uh, historical moments to the philosophical uh, point. Luther did more than just uh, turn against the church. He turned against uh, a long-running tradition in Western philosophy, which was uh, the tradition that there is something above the world of opinions, namely the world of knowledge or truth. 
And that is a tradition that goes back in philosophy uh, to the early uh, 6th century BC, uh, when you have figures like Heraclitus or uh, Parmenides, who were writing about the <laughs> probably the most intriguing fact uh, that launched philosophy, namely how uh, can it be that people disagree about everything uh, and do that with such glee, whereas on the other hand, it should be clear to any intelligent person that there is something, a unifying thing behind the phenomena. So we are look, locked in the phenomena, but beyond that, there is a reality that is not subject to that kind of uh, uh, yes or no opinions. You have to go in it and find what is true and what is not true. And uh, for the Greeks, this idea that there is truth be not be behind or beneath or above the phenomena, uh, this came to be called the, uh, the logos, the thing that there is a logical aspect to being, not just uh, psychology, not just sociology, not just uh, shouting, but a sort of uh, truth that has to be grasped by the mind. And this grasping by the mind was taught increasingly by the Greeks, certainly uh, if you followed the next generations up to uh, Plato, uh, they, they uh, realized that this truth could be, uh, as it were, explored in a systematic way. And philosophy became a, a disciplined undertaking precisely because it had this developed this idea that the locals consist of ideas, ideas with a capital I, so not just things in the mind or uh, things in words, but things that are real in themselves. And this is what launched uh, philosophy uh, as a separate discipline uh, and gave it at least the hope of leaving the way of opinion, as Parmenides had called it, and to go switch over to the way of truth. And the difference between the way of opinion, the logical difference between the two is that the way of opinion has no direction. As Heraclitus so beautifully uh, and succinctly expressed it, the way up is also the way down. So you, you, you're always right. Is this road going up? Is it going down? You're always right, because there is no sense of direction in opinions. But in the way of uh, truth, there is a fixed uh, direction. So you can go with it, or you can go against it. If you go with it, that is by thinking rigorously and conscientiously, uh, you will arrive at ever more stable truth, whereas if you go the other way, you will arrive at something that cannot be true, so that cannot be real, so there is no, no interest in going in that direction.
Now let me add the uh, religious component here. Uh, the world of ideas became, in classical Greek philosophy, uh, something like, but not quite like, uh, the later conceptions of God. The word God in uh, its different variations has two basic meanings. The uh, Indo-German tradition going back to the old trans, uh, Sanskrit, the Indo-German uh, languages, they emphasize the, the aspect of shining things. The divine things are the shining things, they are the beautiful things. Right? So they, they are, as it were, uh, praiseworthy for their uh, intrinsic uh, characteristics. There is also a, uh, another Semitic uh, tradition, which we translate, the words of which we translate uh, with the term God, and then it means the, the mighty one, or the overpowering one, or the force. Uh, and that is, of course, a very different set of uh, ideas coming out of that. You have religions of the beautiful things, and in, with the Greeks that became the religion of uh, reason and goodness, of wisdom, right? and you have religions of force. So uh, that was in classical Greece, obviously, the religion of goodness and reason, wisdom. So religion was the, the philosophical uh, goal, uh, wisdom seeking, and that was also the thing that kept everything together, because the, the religious aspect, how things go together, hang together, uh, for the Greeks was uh, the wisdom encapsulated in the, the unity of the ideas. Now for uh, Plato, this, this was uh, obvious, but it uh, created a problem for him, namely, what do these ideas have to do with the world we live in? Below the line, up, the, up on top of the line, above the line, you have the realm of knowledge, truth, and all these uh, things. Below, you have opinion. So how do the ideas uh, work in the darkness uh, of the world of opinion, and more importantly, the world of nature, the world of facts? And his answer was that there had to be a demiurge, a sort of God, not himself a divine thing, because this God was not an idea, but it was something that was so motivated by love for the ideas that it wanted to communicate this love to every uh, thing in, the, in nature that had the capacity for responding in kind to this love. So this demiurge uh, became the, the animating spirit of the, of the world as we know it. Because animating, it was a 
something strange to the dead nature, that it was an animation by the love of the divine things. Now, there are all sorts of problems connected with this, but I'm uh, not going into that. I'll just jump to the next great uh, Greek philosopher. It has to be Aristotle. And Aristotle uh, made, really, a mess of things, in a way. Because he said, no, we do not need a demiurge. True, the divine ideas, they're there. But the divine ideas themselves are God. There is no need for a lesser God to, to act. So how does it happen that this God is of relevance to people and animals? And the answer by, uh, given by Aristotle was, God is relevant because everything loves him. So the love is no longer the work of the demiurge, right? A sort of thing that is given. It is something that is already there in all, in all of nature. And that was the religious or theological, if you wish, basis for the general uh, the teleological uh, approach of uh, Aristotle. Everything has this inherent motion which is directed toward a particular object. Then suddenly uh, the classical period in, in Greek thinking was over and there was a uh, period when the Stoics and Epicureans uh, set the tone and both of them were very much against the notion of ideas. Uh, the Stoics thought of God as a, a force imminent in nature. It was a force diffused through nature, but it was just as material as any other force. So it was not something from above, it was something inside. And this became uh, an important, I, I will not discuss Epicurus because he loved the gods, he simply thought that they were irrelevant. So nice irrelevancies. Uh, the Stoic left a mark in Rome because the Romans liked this idea of an omnipotent God. They had, their, of course, their capitaline, the tra traditional gods, but they began when they were making up their empire, they began to. Uh, feel the need for gods that were more than just another set of local tribes. So to justify the empire, they needed to have gods that represented the world rather than just Rome, historical, traditional Rome. So they uh, turned for uh, some reason to uh, Stoicism and to other notions inherited from the, uh, from the East, mainly. But very soon, uh, they had to answer the question, more or less on a philosophical ground, what is God? 
And uh, already in the early first century, uh, so the beginning of the empire under Nero, uh, and, uh, Roman aristocrats Seneca came up with a formula that would make history. He said, uh, God is a quantity, a magnitude, greater than which cannot be thought. And that modified, that formula would become the foundation of Christian theology in the Middle Ages. There was a clear problem with uh, Seneca's formula. It's magnitudo, magnitudes. There can be no magnitude such that no greater magnitude can be thought. Right? Because um, like force, you can think of a force. Well, I can think of a force that is slightly or much greater than the one you are thinking of. And anybody can do that. These magnitudes, what makes them scientifically interesting is that they can be measured, that is expressed in numbers, but there simply is no greatest number. So you can always go in thought beyond that. So if you uh, remove this logical problem, what remains of the uh, Roman idea of the universal God, that is, is the strongest, the highest, the greatest being, but not necessarily greater than can be thought. So there can be, you can imagine that something else will someday appear which will be greater. So it was not really a, a, a very strong foundation for a religion that was to bear an, an empire. Uh, so you, you know what happened with Christianity in the early empire, but it was in the empire that Christianity grew up, right? So and a lot of the culture, cultured atmosphere of the Roman Empire uh, penetrated Christian communities and Christian thinking and Christian intellectuals, and as they became more and more established within the empire, uh, parts of the Roman elites, many of uh, which were to some extent Christianized. So Christianity uh, was on the way, so to speak, of becoming a, a religion of magnitudes, especially force and power, because this was acceptable within the world of the, uh, the empire force and power was essential to the existence and the functioning of the empire. Although this made it very difficult to uh, uh, explain or accept the sayings reported in the New Testament of Jesus, mainly that he refused all the, the kingdoms of the world and, and the glory of them. Right? So he had nothing to do with these kinds of powers. Now, luckily for uh, Christianity, and Sean will probably disagree, <laughs> but the Western Empire collapsed, leaving in the West uh, this mosaic of, well, not mosaic, kaleidoscope of moving tribes 
or looking for a place to settle down. No political authority to uh, keep them in check, but miraculously, a uh, rather effective, amazingly effective uh, spiritual power, which, which was the church, although she had very little means except she could talk to people or thunder at people. It was not all gentle talk. <laughs> These early missionaries were no uh, pushovers. But anyway, they, uh, the church got in at the grassroots in the woods covering uh, what later became Europe. And uh, from there, uh, with the help of a few rather unsavory characters such as uh, Charles Charlemagne, right? uh, a butcher in his own right, but also a man who had sufficient understanding of uh, the role of religion as a binding factor that he promoted the works of the church, for example, by founding uh, institutions of learning all over uh, Europe, so that there was a common language, Latin language, and a common script, the, uh, the shortened script that he invented, uh, spe specifically for the purpose of facilitating communication. And this led to a, a flourishing of uh, the Christian uh, faith as a common element in Europe when Charlemagne's, Charlemagne's heritage and uh, the reign of his sons came to an end. And you ended up with the feudal period. Now, in the 11th century, which is the century when the medieval civilization, as it were, uh, began to establish itself after Charlemagne, the uh, peace of God movement took hold. It merged with the, uh, the monastery movement. It had been from the 6th century uh, monasteries. And at the time, the monasteries were the uh, as it were, the, the first phase of the church in the West, far more important than the Pope, the bishops, or the, the priests. The, the, monic, the monks were the holy, the holy men, right? whereas the, the bishops were members of rich, powerful uh, families who always had a double-faced identity. They were members of the elite, but they were also holy, in, in holy orders. But for the, the monks, it was different. They had a, uh, an, the role of an example. They were really devoting their lives to God. And in that sense, uh, they had an authority far beyond that of the priests. Now, one of the monks, probably one of the, the greatest minds in uh, the Middle Ages, uh, was an Italian born in Aosta and moved then to northern France, monastery of Beck, and later uh, became Archbishop of Canter Canterbury. So Anselm of Canterbury, uh, Anselm of Aosta, Anselm of Beck, 
it's all the same. But I'm interested in Anselm of Beck because it was as prior of the monastery in Beck that Anselm turned his idea, his, his, his mind for the very first time really in uh, Christendom to the question how to understand God. Right? He wanted a faith based on understanding, faith-seeking understanding. Why? Because he was convinced that without faith, no understanding is possible. So you see, faith and understanding are really two sides of the, of the same coin. And he uh, set out to discover uh, God in, in his monastery, no electricity, right? it gets early, dark, dark, very early in winter. So it was a very uh, poor life. Luckily, there was a, a library, but for the rest, the, the accommodations in, in uh, Beck were not very great. Proof, he had to write on clay tablets. So the monastery was not rich enough to provide uh, parchment or even whatever could pass as paper. It was clay tablets. So he wrote, he, he gave his lectures, oral lectures, and when his novices and the, the monks asked him to explain in writing, he said, okay, I'll do it. It's not easy to do this, but he did. And when it was finished, uh, a rather clumsy novice broke all the tablets. Problem if you drop clay tablets, they break. So he had to rewrite them. And uh, as he was doing that, he got very uncomfortable with what he had written. Because he had noticed that he had always been talking about the greatest being, the highest being, this sort of absolute uh, greatness in fact, or in power, or in whatever. And he felt that he had not made a convincing case at all. One reason why he felt that was that the, the poor monks in Beck had enormous trouble following his very intricate and convoluted arguments. This was not just uh, here is A, B, and C, and now we have conclusion E. And this was going all over the place. Very difficult. So instead of showing them the way to God, he felt that he had been misleading them, or rather confusing them. Not a very good feeling for a teacher. Right? If at the end of the semester you have to say, what have I done? And he reported being in an uh, existential crisis, even to the point, notice for a, a monk in the 11th century, even to the point of losing his faith. So this was a very deep crisis. And he got out of it, I think, that's my uh, interpretation, precisely because he was in such a deep crisis we would say he was on the point of becoming an atheist. Right? 
And what did he do? He addressed the atheist. So the, the next little work he wrote, much shorter than the original monologion, uh, the proslogion, began with an argument against the atheist. Now, in the 11th century, you could look far and wide. There were no atheists. There were all Christians. Or if you went to Spain, you could find a few Jews, and, or uh, you could find Muslims. And if you went to the, to the woods in the north, you could find some remaining pagans. But the, they were all people who believed in God. So luckily for uh, Anselm, he could point to a, a psalm in the, in the Bible uh, which, is a, which starts with the words of the fool. The fool who says there is no God. Right? So he, that's how he begins. And he said, if I can convince the fool that there is a God, then I am in the clear again, because then at least what I have written will have an object. And how did he start to address the fool? Well, he changed Seneca's formula from a magnitude greater than which cannot be thought to the more neutral something greater than which cannot be thought. But the examples he gives and the explanations he gives make it clear that he means not quality and not quantity, but quality. So he's talking about things like truth, truth uh, wisdom, reason, intelligence, mindfulness, conscientiousness, uh, mercy, justice, knowledge, all these things about which no conscientious person can say to have less of these is better than to have more of these. So he defined God as that greater than which cannot be thought, which translates in Platonic language as the good itself. So goodness itself became God. And this uh, redefinition of God, which made no mention of powers or forces, became, as it were, the, the launching, launch pad for the uh, Christian theology, uh, which had been on a back burner uh, since the, the days of uh, St. Augustine. Uh, so after more than 500 years, there was a revival of theological uh, thinking. Now, unfortunately, uh, this theory of Anselm was very uh, platonic. It was Plato's theory, but as it were, purified. No possibility of putting inside it the third man problem or whichever of the classical uh, objections made against uh, uh, Plato's theory of ideas. Because in uh, the Ansel Anselmic version, it was all about certain qualities. Right? And to, just to give a small example, you have the quality of redness. Things are red. Some things are redder than other things. Some things are not red at all. But, and this is the platonic move, there can be nothing redder than redness itself. And this, if you 
think about it logically, this already means that redness is not a red thing. It is a thing in itself, but it's not a thing that is red, like a person's red trousers over there. It's trousers, trousers, and they are red, but redness itself is nothing but red. So that means that if you try to have an idea of non-redness itself, you have something that is non-red and nothing else. So you end up with nothing. So we have here a, 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 a tapestry of things and their oppositions, which is logically very tightly organized. And uh, one of the uh, things, let me go quickly to that, one of the qualities that Anselm introduced, although I must admit, not in so many words, but uh, as it were, in the way he presented his theory, was uh, the qualities of personhood and community. Now, this is important, I think, to uh, any future libertarian uh, philosophy, because one of the th problems with current Americanized post-Reformation uh, libertarianism is that the person, the idea of the person is not really present. You have the individual, but the individual is unlike the, uh, the notion of the person uh, bereft of a higher dimension, so to speak. A horse is an individual, a cat is an individual, even a spider is an individual. There's no way you can cut them up and end up with two individuals. So the, the physical integrity of the individual does not even begin to compare with the personal integrity of the person which involves the commit, commitment to these higher things in themselves, like truth. And what is a person who does not know or does not uh, want to know truth? Uh, who has no sense of justice, no sense of mercy. Even an evil person has a sense of justice, if, even if he takes pleasure in being unjust. You need to, be, if he does not understand what uh, justice is, uh, then he cannot take uh, opposition to it, so to speak. He becomes like a, an alligator, right? beyond good and evil. So uh, Anselm's theology, naturally, I would say, almost naturally, involved in the, uh, the ideas of person, personhood and community. The difference between person and individual. Individual is that to become a person, you need to be in communion with other persons. You cannot become a person on your own. That's why if you look at children and you, you drop them in the woods and they miraculously survive, they will not come back out of the woods as persons. They will be, if they survive, they will be surviving animals. But you would then still have to start from nothing in turning them into persons with which you can speak and communicate and have a conscience. And of course, uh, to, to 
imply these things are for Anselm quite natural because they uh, make it uh, possible to add the Trinitarian ideas. God is a community of three divine persons, but God himself is not a person. The, the triunity is not a person, but the three persons are. So his uh, theology solved a number of problems there. Another idea that is very much present in him is freedom, personal freedom. And he noted that uh, the idea of freedom is the same whether you apply it to God or to man. And that is interesting uh, because uh, God is free in the same sense that man is, or rather man is free in the same sense that God is free. Now, in what sense is God free? He is free in the sense that he cannot do anything against his own nature. And what is his own nature? This Anselm had explained and is at the bottom of his uh, proof for the existence of God. God is all the things, all the divine things rolled into one, so to speak. He is love, he is truth, he is wisdom, he is reason, he is intelligence, and so on. He is personhood, he is community. But in, in saying this, he had also implied that all these things, which is also already implied in, in Plato, that all these things are really logically compatible. So you cannot use justice to justify lying, so to speak, or truth-telling to become, uh, to justify injustice or mercilessness or uh, foolishness. All these things have to be uh, taken in account, into account at all times. And this means that the uh, theology which Anselm developed was really a, more, a theology of the moral law, taking law in the sen general sense of order. Uh, it is an order of moral things, right? where moral is an unhappy word because it's really the, an order of the shining things, of the things good and excellent in themselves. So if you have that uh, before you, you, you realize immediately that the moral law, which became a very famous expression later, cannot be a set of rules. Right? The moral law is rather uh, the right, is a question of having the right attitude through life. So a moral education is not instruction in certain rules, it is teaching your children to behave with the right attitude in the unpredictable multitude of circumstances that may arrive in life. So an education is different from an instruction. Right? And the, the, the legalization of the notion of the moral law, which came after uh, uh, Anselm, in fact, in modern times, with the idea that the, the, the commandments are the uh, essence of moral teaching, uh, 
this medieval idea uh, has been lost, and I think that's uh, not so very good because it it created lots of confusion about the relationship between rules and attitudes. Now, going to the final stage, <laughs> the Reformation, uh, this is what Luther, as it were, disavowed. The idea that there is anything other than the biblical revelation that connects man and God. So the very idea that you can think about reason and goodness and intelligence and so on, from the right perspective, is uh, anathema to uh, the Protestants. If you, do, if you think like that, you are not one of us. Uh, because man is nothing, God is everything. And reason, uh, in the immortal words of Martin Luther in his last uh, ser sermon in Wittenberg, uh, reason is uh, a, a pretty whore. It's, it's, it's something to be despised. It can only leave you, uh, lead you astray. So what remains of religion in the Reformation this is the word of God, and of the word of God as rightly interpreted by the right Protestant authority. That's a recipe for disaster, right? uh, because it can go anywhere, and it went everywhere. So what happened to freedom? Many people think that by uh, destroying the idea of a common conscience, a conscience that unites all men to the principles of rightness, to God, right? The common cons conscience between God and man was, with a Luther, as it were, uh, disassembled into a common conscience of each individual, individual privately with God. Right? So my conscience tells me. He could say to the Pope, you have no conscience of God. Right? My conscience is with God and your conscience is not. You are the Antichrist. Christ. Uh, so this destruction of the common conscience, that is of the, the common element in common, logic, in common knowledge, uh, led to the modernistic uh, embrace of sub subjectivism and relativism. But if you want to uh, learn more about that, read Joseph Ratzinger, who made a, a, a profession out of decrying the rise and the, the dominance of relativistic and subjectivistic ideas. Subjectivism is OK when it we're talking about uh, tastes and colors, uh, your de gustibus et de coloribus, non est disputandum. But if you are talking about uh, things like truth and justice and beauty and, and other things like that, uh, you cannot simply say, doesn't matter, we all have our own taste in truth, in justice. 
that is a recipe for uh, chaos. Okay, uh, with the destruction of conscience, many people, and I've known some, uh, said, hey, this is really uh, freedom. I no longer have to justify myself. I can do what I want. And then the, yeah, soon there was a problem, and there was uh, not really a problem because you can do what you want, but your actions, your physical actions, should be regulated to the extent that they do not cause harm or violence to another. That made for a, the kind of uh, libertarian thinking that is so high, uh, so formal, that it doesn't convince anybody because people think rarely from this academic standpoint of we are making, creating a new world. Right? People think from within their own situation from where they are, and what it, does it mean for us. And when you start thinking from that, you need a richer canvas, or, or rather a richer tool than merely to say, uh, you can do what you want as long as you do not do harm to uh, your neighbor. Right? Because defining harm or defining property, uh, these are things which happen very much later stage. And if before you reach that stage there has not been inculcated a very profound attitude of rightness and respect for rightness and for the goodness and for reason and intelligence and so on, then of course all these different uh, solutions that may be offered, property is this, harm is that, and so on, no, no it's it, no it's that, they will come to nothing, because the arguments that will resolve these uh, problems have to be appeals to the other's conscience. So unless you have first worked on having a common conscience, your arguments will not amount to anything. And uh, if this is not perhaps the the brightest point on which to, to end. This is where I'll end. Thank you.